0: Hey what's going on automotive world welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast my name is Sean Tipping. And it's just me again for this week, but uh, i got a few more case studies here for you. I've got some interviews lined up uh, in the near future, uh, get some other people on here, but uh, you're stuck with me this week, so uh, let's uh, get into it. Um, here's what I want to talk about this week. I'm sure it's something that all of you are familiar with, um, but it deserves a little bit more conversation, I think. Just so that it's top of mind, uh, while we're going into uh, everyday life as technicians, right? Um, what I'm going to be going through today is the what I feel is a surge in poor quality replacement parts okay so i'm talking about a new part you put on a vehicle after you've made a diagnosis already you've already condemned a part for one reason or another you put a new part on not necessarily a used one a used one might be better in some instances here but you put a new part on you've purchased from some vendor be be it aftermarket or even sometimes dealerships and after you put on that new part uh it Still has the same problem, or maybe a different problem, but the worst is when you have the same problem um, as the one you replaced it with. And I'm running into this all the time doing my mobile work. It feels like the last few weeks, or maybe a couple months, that's like all I've been telling shops is yeah, this third part that you've put on here is failed. And they're at their wits' end because they've lost all confidence in their ability to diagnose the problem because every part they put on there, they end up with the same issue, the same problem. And that does get really difficult for us as technicians. We second guess ourselves. We second guess our testing procedures, what we think is normal for the system, how we assess that a component failed when every part that we put on there gives us the same issue, right? Um, so how do we get past that? It's kind of what I want to talk about today is giving you some examples of how we can be confident in understanding how the system works and our testing procedures, our test results to say for sure, yeah, this is the third junk part uh, that we put on this vehicle. So um, that out of the way, um, I'm going to give you three case studies and actually, um, before we get into the case studies, uh, I was going to talk about uh, just modules in general. Um, I don't have a specific case study for control modules, but that's kind of the way we can start this off is that I'm seeing a ton, a ton of control modules that are junk, either right out of the box or shortly after. Uh, one that comes to mind right now, uh, it, it's actually a vehicle at a transmission shop that I go to is the Ford Fiesta and the Ford. Uh, focused with the automatically shifted manual transmission, Uh, the TCMs and those things are extremely prone to failure. Uh, Ford had some big recall on them. Uh, I've done so many in the last few years uh, all the time, but the actual Ford modules are on intergalactic back order. You just can't get one. Um, I don't even know if the Ford dealerships can get them if they're hoarding them, but they're, they're nowhere to be found. However, if you go onto eBay or other websites, I don't know where, um, I know a few of my customers have purchased these TCMs from eBay. Um, They get these modules and I've done two or three of them now where they're either failed right out of the box, like they won't even program. Uh, that's the couple that I've run into, or um, they program and then they fail almost immediately. Uh, They, you know, they'll do the learn procedure, the customer goes out and drive it and it's an immediate failure. And I got one sitting at a transmission shop that's been there for uh, at least a month, if not more, they're just waiting on a Ford module and they have no idea when they're going to get one. Right. So I guess that's just going to show that modules in general are having a trouble with the chip shortage and everything um, but just getting a quality replacement part is pretty difficult um, you know personally I think this at least for the foreseeable future is going to bring used parts uh, you know back into focus you know because it actually kind of makes sense now to recycle some used modules even though auto manufacturers haven't really made it the easiest for us to do that uh, there's some really smart people out there that can still make it happen um maybe with some uh you know backdoor methods to to get a used module to work but that's the best option for repairing certain vehicles right now um anyways, that's kind of its own thing, the whole module thing, but I'm seeing that a ton, right? Where we put a module in, it won't program right, or it doesn't do what it's supposed to, or or it creates a new problem that we didn't even have before um, from some of these remand, um, or (laughs) I don't even know where they come from modules. But anyways, let's get into the case studies here, um, because the case studies actually don't have anything to do with modules. I just wanted to touch on that before we jump in. Um, The first vehicle that I wanted to talk about, um, was actually uh, three different vehicles in the span of three weeks, but they're all very similar. Um, So I'm going to lay this out for you to understand what I'm talking about. It's 2008 to 2010-ish Dodge Charger or Chrysler 300. Two of these were Chargers and one was a 300. Um, They all had V6 engines, so I don't know if this applies to the the hemi style it might i'm not 100 percent on that but all three of these vehicles had fuel pumps replaced for no fuel pressure okay so the shop diagnosed that there was no fuel pressure um fairly easy diagnosis to make and they determined that the fuel pump was at fault okay so the fuel pump on this one it's a saddle style tank so there's actually two sending units on each side of the vehicle um each side of the tank but the actual electric pump is in the drive driver's side of that saddle tank. You pull up the back seat, pull the cover off, and then you can access that pump. There's a long tube that goes in between them. Each side has a level sensor, Um, pretty common setup. But anyways, the pump that I'm referring to is on the driver's side. And so the first one that I got called into, um, they said, yeah, we've got no fuel pressure in this thing. And we replaced the fuel pump and there's still no fuel pressure. And we're really not sure where to go. Um, because they're assuming the part they put in there was just fine you know it's a brand new pump and we have the same symptoms we must have missed something so could you come take a look at it sure and i verified very quickly that yes there was no fuel pressure uh, going to this engine so first thing i do they actually had the back seat out i went right to the pump connector and it's got four wires uh, two for the pump and two for the level sensor. And so all I'm looking for here is power and ground to the pump. It has a constant ground. It receives uh, power from a relay that's located in the power distribution center in the trunk of the vehicle. What I did was I used my scan tool, left the key on, and I um, went into the bidirectional controls for the PCM and I turned on this the fuel pump um, there's a toggle feature that you can use for these Chrysler vehicles where it will turn on and off on and off and I'm going to plug in my test light or I could use a headlight bulb if I'm questionable but I plugged in my test light across the two wires for you know power and ground of the fuel pump and the light lights up okay so I know something's happening there and again I could uh, utilize a headlight bulb, a 9000 series headlight bulb here to verify that the circuit can handle the load. But my Tesla light was lighting brightly. And so I'm like, okay, well, everything is here. And my first thought was maybe this is just a junk pump right out of the box. Okay. That's kind of what we're talking about here <laughs> on the episode. But um, this actually has happened to me three times in three weeks now. But at this first one, I wasn't aware of that. Um, so what I decided to do was pull out the fuel pump from the from the tank and just to check it out and see you know was something left unplugged was there anything going on with this pump is there something i'm missing between the connector at the top portion of the pump and the actual pump itself because think of a fuel pump module assembly the actual electric fuel pump is down in the lower portion of the module assembly where the strainer is. And then there's a short sub harness or wiring that goes from the pump up to this top plastic piece that actually, uh, you know, is retained on the top of the tank. And that's where the plug in is. Okay. And so there is a short piece of wiring between that piece and the pump, but you can't see that unless you pull the pump out. So that's what I did. I pulled the pump out and I wanted to take a look at this. And Um, everything seemed to be plugged in and everything, but I was looking at the connector that plugged into the top of the tank. And I was looking at the connector that went from the top piece of the tank down to the pump. And I noticed that the four wires that were present on this connector, there were two of a larger gauge wire, and then there were two of a smaller gauge wire. Okay, And on the harness side, the vehicle harness side, the two larger gauge wires were right next to each other and the two smaller gauge wires were right next to each other. Okay, so the larger gauge is for a load. It's for the fuel pump. It takes current. The smaller gauge wire is for the level sensor. We're just talking about voltage. We don't need to send current. So they change the size of the wires according to what the circuit needs to do. But on the pump side, okay, so after we're now inside of the tank going down to the pump, it went large, small, large, small. So the two large wires were no longer next to each other on this connector, meaning that one of the wires that we were sending, I think it was ground to, was actually going to the level sensor. And what was supposed to be feeding power to the pump is hooked up to the circuit of on the car side that's for the level sensor. So of course the pump's not going to run here because it can't, it doesn't have power and ground. It has, I think it had power, but it didn't have a ground. And the level sensor is now connected into, uh, the driver circuit for the, um, for the fuel pump. Well, of course the pump's not going to run. So what I did in this case, I actually tried depinning this thing and it was an absolute nightmare i could not get the pins out because i was just going to move the pin one over on this connector it's like a little sub harness on the fuel pump i was just going to move the pin over one i I don't know I, i fought it for like five minutes and i'm like okay screw this so i just unplugged it on the top portion of the fuel pump and then i unplugged it on the pump and the level sensor i swapped out the old one, because they actually did have the old pump uh, for me, plug that in, the pump runs immediately, it's good to go. Okay, so that one was solved, but this happened to me two more times <laughs> within three weeks. I'm like, what the heck's going on? And I asked the The shop owners, after the second one, is like, Where are you getting these pumps from? AutoZone. Okay. And and not to bash on AutoZone, who knows where they get it from, right? The suppliers probably any place. But the third one that I went into, you know, it's a Chrysler 300, no fuel pressure. We just replaced the pump. I'm like, Okay, I know exactly what to do. So, you know, I walk in there and I look like, you know, (laughs) I I have a crystal ball or something because I walk right back to the pump. I pull it out. I'm like, Yep, here you go. But I'd seen it a couple times already. I'm like, Where'd you? guys get this pump? Was it AutoZone? Oh, how'd you know? Okay. So it looked like they maybe had a bad supply, but for everybody else out there, I guess, watch out for it. If you're getting an aftermarket pump, those sub harnesses between the top of the fuel pump and the fuel pump itself are wired in correctly. And again, three times in three weeks. So uh, whether it was a bad batch or, uh, you know, something is just up with that era of vehicle, I don't know, but keep an eye out for it uh, if you're installing fuel pumps on those things. So the fix was just to correct the wiring and it was good to go. The pump ran. Okay, so on to the next one. This is a 2007 Chevrolet Equinox, has a 3.4 liter V6. This thing still has an EGR valve. We don't see a ton of EGR valves on gas motors anymore, but this one has one. Um, this is an old push rod motor with plug wires, um, you know, getting pretty outdated for 2007 even, um. But the shop had just replaced the EGR valve for P0404, which is open position performance for the EGR valve. Well, after they replaced the valve, they got the same code. So they called me to come check it out. They said, well, maybe there's a circuit issue. Maybe there's an ECM issue. But we want you to check it out and you let us know know, what we need to do. So... I get into this, and I verify, of course, yeah, that the code is present, um, and the open position performance for the EGR just means that when the EGR is commanded open, the computer does not like what it sees from the position sensor. Okay, so it definitely could be a circuit code, but let's get into this and see what we've got going on. I graph the EGR position. And I put the vehicle into gear because uh, you can't just rev these things up, at least on GMs. They won't activate the EGR valve unless you're under a load. And and so I would put it into drive, power brake the vehicle. I could see the EGR command go up. And as soon as I did that, I watched the position sensor and it would jump like erratically between almost closed to fully open. And you could actually feel it. Um, as the engine was trying to accelerate, it would start to chug like it was misfiring and stumbling as you were doing that. It it kind of felt like, you know, an EGR was open when it wasn't supposed to. And I I think that's what was happening based off of what I saw on the scan tool. So obviously we definitely have an issue here, but the fact that the engine actually chugged and ran poorly makes me think that the position sensor that's showing rapid movement up and down is reading accurately, right? that um, there's actually you know, something going on that's keeping that valve open or forcing that valve open more uh, than it normally would be. Um, because if it was just a sensor or circuit issue, I and mean, it could still be a circuit issue for the solenoid side, but if it was a circuit issue for the sensor, the engine wouldn't run poorly. Um, and in this case, it definitely feels like the EGR is open more than it's supposed to be And I'm seeing that reflected in the way the engine's running and also the position voltage that I'm getting through the scan tool. So I'm going to go to the valve and inspect. Um, There's five wires on this thing. Three are for the potentiometer, which is the position sensor of this valve, and the other two are for the solenoid, which actually moves the valve and and causes it to open up when the computer computer commands it to, and it's going to pulse with modulate the circuit in order to do this. There is a constant ground to the solenoid, which is fed by the PCM, and then there is a pulsed power source, which is going to be duty cycled by the PCM in order to open up the valve a certain percentage. Okay. So pretty standard stuff. I'm sure most of you are familiar with how this works. So what I did in this case is I want to make sure that the uh, command to this solenoid didn't have some sort of issue. Because like I said, it was opening up way more than it should have been. And I want to make sure that the computer is commanding this thing correctly. So I check for the ground. And the ground is constant. It's always there. There's no issue. But what I did was I scoped the power source to the solenoid. And again, this comes from the PCM. There's a transistor inside of there is going to pulse with modulate. The power source to the solenoid in order to uh, get it to open a certain amount. And I can actually control the amount of duty cycle via the scan tool. I can give it a percentage and I gave it 10%, just like that should be barely open for this valve. And I watch it on my Uscope. And although it does register as a 10% 10% duty cycle as far as the on time goes um, the pattern did look really weird and, and that's the best way i can describe it audio only it wasn't a very clean square wave um, which i thought was kind of odd but it was a square wave and um, it was about 10%. Now here's the other thing i noticed when i turned it on and the engine's off and i'm just you know kind of sitting there on top of the valve listening to it it sounded like it was clicking and If you've ever tested an EGR valve, especially one that's pulsed with modulated, they don't click. Um, They'll almost kind of make a similar noise to like an electric throttle where it's like almost a high-pitched whining noise. It's not exactly like an electric throttle, but it's similar to that because it should be being pulsed so quickly that the valve is not rapidly moving like up and down in its full travel, but it will actually hang open a certain amount. I mean, that's the whole purpose of pulse width modulating a solenoid very quickly is so that we can get that valve to, to open a certain amount rather than being fully open or fully closed. But this thing sounded like it was clicking, like opening up fully and then closing fully at 10%, which is not right. But also is going to support what i saw on my position sensor in the scan tool so what i did here because this was super easy it was two 10 millimeter bolts i pulled the valve off i left it connected and i wanted to watch that pintle and i did and i watched this thing and it's going up and down and up and down it's full travel at 10 percent duty cycle and i was like well okay well this is (laughs) this is obviously not right there's something wrong with the situation because that that shouldn't be happening um Now I was questioning, okay, is this just another failed EGR valve because it's the same code they had before? Or is there a problem with the circuit? Now, how could there be a problem with the circuit to cause the issue that we're having, right? A valve that's moving too much from a 10% duty cycle. And I was thinking, I was like, well, if the percentage of the duty cycle is correct, the on time is correct, and we have good power and ground, we can't, get a valve to move more than it's supposed to it's just that's not possible on the circuit side um it has to be something wrong with the solenoid itself it has to be um the wrong uh resistance uh, compared to what the right resistance should be and that valve is just moving too much from that 10 percent duty cycle and i was thinking that that has to be what it is but let me just verify the circuit with something else in place besides the egr valve So I unplugged the EGR valve, I put my test light in place, and I also watched the duty cycle while I was commanding the solenoid on with my test light in place. And it lights up my test light just fine, and it changes based on the duty cycle. The duty cycle also cleaned up significantly um, when I was using my test light instead of this solenoid. Now, I didn't do an amperage measurement measurement of the solenoid and maybe I should have, but I have a feeling that thing was drawing way too many amps for what was supposed to be in there. And again, making full movement of the solenoid at 10%, not what it was supposed to do. So at this point, I'm pretty confident. I tell the shop, get another EGR valve for this thing. The one you got is junk. Um, So they do that. They get another EGR valve. They put it in, same thing. I'm like, okay. So he calls me up. He's like, yeah, it's doing the same thing. And I'm like, okay, well, let me come back out. I'll double check this. And maybe I missed something. And I looked at it and it um, it was setting the same code, but it was actually failing in a slightly different way. It wasn't opening up as much, uh, but there was still movement if you looked at the position sensor on the scan tool and so i went through everything again condemned the valve again okay this one's still not working the way it's supposed to everything checks out with the circuit i told him we need to try a different brand he's like okay and we we looked the last two had been delphi egr valves on this thing and which you would assume would be good but he's like i'll try a different brand so he tries a different brand he said same problem and i told him i was like okay i'll check this out one more time there's got to be something i'm missing But between the time that I was able to get out there, he actually found an AC Delco valve. He put the AC Delco one in and he called me and said, it's all good to go. There's no problems here. It was the valve. We just had to get a good one. So we had to go through four different valves in order to get... one that worked correctly which i think is ridiculous but that's what we're up against out there right that's i mean even myself i'm second guessing my own testing procedures when you get three valves that are doing the same thing or something similar so anyways there was no problem with the car it was an egr valve but um on that model make sure you get an ac delco one because apparently the delphi and Eklund ones just don't function correctly for that application so that's a, that's case study number two. Uh, the final one I have for you today was a 2015 Chevy Sonic. And I was called to the shop to look at this son- Sonic because it was overcharging, uh, meaning that the alternator was pumping that battery voltage up too high and it was setting codes in multiple modules for high voltage. And the shop said it was up over 16 volts, which I did confirm. Um, But they've also um, put in three alternators in this vehicle already. Now, uh, the first alternator was put in at another shop and then the customer brought it to this shop. So my one challenge here is I don't know what the original problem was with this Sonic. I don't know if it just wasn't charging and we built in this problem or if the problem was always overcharging. And I, I still don't know to this point right now. I know we fixed it, but at that time that I'm looking at it, I don't know if this is the original problem or not, but I do know it is a problem. We're not supposed to be overcharging. So um, I'm going to look into this here. And of course, it's really common. I'm sure, again, most of you are aware of this to get alternators that don't charge correctly uh, with all the um, advanced charging systems that we have on vehicles now. Um, it seems to be very common with aftermarket alternators to have issues. And so that's the first thing that's on my mind. Um, but of course, my job is to check. And once a couple components have been replaced or the, you know, the same component has been replaced a couple times, I really want to you know dot all my I and cross all my T's on my diagnosis to make sure that I'm making the right call because you can see it in these shop owners faces. When I tell them your third part is also failed, they're like, are you sure? And I'm like, well, I think so. But no, I, I want to be, I want to be confident in, the, in this. Um, so I need to understand how this system works. So let's go over this quickly here on this 15 Sonic, how the charging system works. And you may be familiar with it, but I want to go over it in case you're not. Um, the alternator, fairly simple. It's got an internal regulator that's going to regulate the voltage for the system. It's got the big, thick cable that's actually you know pumping out current to the system, to the battery, and then it's got a small two-wire connector, which it's going to get instruction from the engine control module on what level to charge the system to, okay? And on that two-wire connector, we have an L-terminal and an F-terminal, and the L-terminal is basically the duty cycle, a pulse-width modulated duty cycle from the PCM that's going to send a percentage to that alternator to charge to a certain point, And then the F terminal is the feedback back from the internal regulator on the alternator back to the PCM to say, yeah, I charge this much. So we have a um, a duty cycle, a command, and then we have a feedback back to the ECM. And that's pretty much the setup, you know, to actually run this alternator. Um, But there is a little bit more to the system away from the alternator. Now, of course, you have the engine control module in control of actually changing the output level of the alternator. But the ECM, and I got all this from reading service information, the ECM is going to receive instruction about charging the system from the body control module. And the body control module is going to manage electrical loads on the system. And it's going to look at battery state of charge. It's going to look at, of course, the system voltage. It's also going to look at an inductive amp clamp, I guess maybe it's not a clamp, it's a sensor, but I call it an amp clamp that's around the negative battery cable, and it's going to look at the amount of amperage either coming from or going into the battery, depending on the situation. And it's going to take these things into account, and it is going to feed information to the ECM to say, hey, charge to this level, or adjust for this, up or down the voltage because of blank. Um, So there's multiple modules that are involved in this system, and for something like this, where we have a weird overcharging problem, we want to take into consideration, that there could be a problem with another module you know maybe the bcm um does not perceive the system voltage correctly and so it's commanding the pcm to okay go higher higher on this voltage because i'm not reading the system voltage correctly you know that was kind of my first thought is i need to look for that and are all the modules reading the correct voltage level um Something to think about. Maybe the uh, the amp clamp, as I called it, on the negative battery cable is n- not installed correctly. Um, maybe we're missing a cable on there. Maybe it was taken off and not put on correctly, and the BCM is perceiving the the charge out of the battery incorrectly. That's a possibility. Um, you know, there's a number of possibilities here, and we want to consider that as we go in. Um, the other thing that's in service information for this vehicle was a chart that correlated the amount of duty cycle on the L-terminal, that's the one from the ECM to the alternator, it correlated the duty cycle percentage to a voltage level. And this chart was actually really helpful for me in diagnosing this vehicle Basically, the top end of the scale at ninety percent, you should be at fifteen point five volts, which is you know a little higher than some of us are used to uh, when we think traditional charging systems. But this is a newer vehicle, Um, and then. On the lower end of the scale, 10% would be 11 volts and probably wouldn't see that too often, but it is good to know if that's what the PCM is commanding, we're going to have under uh, 12 volts for the the system. And I I don't imagine it would keep it there for very long, but that's the fact of the matter is that percentage on the L terminal, that's what the alternator is supposed to put out. Um, I did note in this uh, chart as well, if there's a fault In the L-terminal circuit, meaning that the duty cycle from the ECM to the alternator has some sort of circuit fault, open, short to ground, short to power, whatever... The alternator is, or the regulator in the alternator is designed to output a constant 13.8 volts. And I've actually verified this on these models before. You unplug that connector, that alternator will put out 13.8 volts steady, as long as it's spinning, obviously. Um, so And that, that's important to know, too, um, because... You know, if we had a fault in this circuit, that's what I'd expect to see. But for some reason, we're seeing a much higher voltage come out of there. And also you can look at data pits in the ECM and it does not indicate a fault for either the L or the F terminal, meaning I don't really need to go under to this alternator just yet to check it because the ECM showing this thing's plugged in. But again, why is it overcharging? Let's look at the data pits and see what we can figure out. So um, I'm looking at the vehicle and when I rev this thing off of idle, I will get 16.8 volts when I get it just off of idle. Below that, we're sitting at 15 and some change, but you know, just a small amount of engine speed increase and we're getting 16.8, which is obviously setting our high voltage codes and obviously not a correct voltage for the system. So when I look at the duty cycle in the ECM for the L-terminal, it started at about 70% when we're idling, and then as I rev it up, it drops to about 40%, and the voltage will eventually come down to about 14 if I hold it there long enough. But there's a decent period of time when the voltage is held up around 16 plus volts, and the ECM seems to respond by dropping the duty cycle, but it can only get it down to about 14 volts at 40% duty cycle. Now, if I look at my chart and I correlate, what is the voltage supposed to be at a 40% duty cycle? It's supposed to be 12.7 at 40%, and it's not. The best that thing can do at 40% is about 14 volts. So that's too high. And of course, uh, when I let it idle, we're sitting at 15 volts and at 70 we're only supposed to be somewhere in third between 13 and 14. so w- what I'm getting at here is the numbers that I see in the system are not correlating to the duty cycle output by the ECM so that's my first concern is that something doesn't match up here so I did want to take a look you know I'm, I'm kind of thinking alternator at this point but I did want to take a look at the BCM just to see if there's anything going on in there um, where the BCM would be indicating a um, a reason to charge more than needed. I mean, again, when we look at that duty cycle, something doesn't quite match up there. Um, but I just want to, again, check everything before I'm ready to call this part. And maybe if it hadn't had three alternators, I probably wouldn't even have gone this far, but I check all the data PIDs in the BCM. And there's actually a lot of useful charging information in the electrical portion of the BCM data PIDs. So if you're on one of these things, I mean, this would probably apply to a lot of GMs around this era. Um, Check out the BCM. It's got a lot of interesting stuff as far as data PIDs go. You can look at battery state of charge. You can look at the amount of amps going in or out of the battery, and I did confirm that with an amp clamp to make sure that the amount that that sensor was reading matched an actual amp clamp that I put around the negative battery cable, and it was accurate, it was mounted correctly, that was all good to go. Um, But you can look at battery state of charge, you can look at um, a number of different data pits that indicate some sort of special uh, charging scenario based on... Uh, you know, something like a sulfation mode or a cold startup mode. And there was a couple other ones in there as well. Um, The one that I noted when I would rev up the engine and our voltage would jump up to 16.8, the BCM had a data PID that said voltage reduced request. And that would say yes, once that happened. And that is when the PCM, would eventually drop down that duty cycle to the alternator to get us to, again, to 14 or so, but at a pretty low percentage that didn't match up to the voltage that we were seeing. But where I'm going with this is the BCM appeared to be trying to lower the system voltage or recognizing that, hey, something is not right here. Why is the voltage so high here? So I didn't see anything in the BCM that indicated an issue. Um, And I did actually check in both the BCM and the ECM that they were reading the actual system voltage, you know, within the data pids that matched what was on the system itself. Okay. Um, That, uh, that all matched up. So they weren't seeing an incorrect voltage. Both modules appear to be trying to charge the vehicle correctly, but it's just not happening. So the last thing I wanted to do was actually scope um, the, L-terminal to make sure that the duty cycle that was present on the circuit matched what the scan tool says. And I just use a scope and you can actually um, measure the duty cycle or the frequency of a circuit. And I matched that up to what I was seeing on the scan tool and it matched, right? So when we're at 70%, that was at 70% on the circuit. 40% was 40%. That all matched. So what the scan tool was telling me it was doing, it was doing on that physical circuit. Um, So at this point, the so one other thing I could have done was unplugged the alternator and see what it charged at. But I didn't try that mainly because it was a pain to get to the alternator. Um, but at this point, everything checks out except for the alternator. That's what needs to be replaced. Um, and again, I would have gotten there sooner hadn't it been for, you know, three alternators that weren't replaced before. Um, of course, I did check the battery condition and made sure that there's not like a block ground issue and all, all that basic checks that, that all checked out. Um and again, I kind of went back and double-checked everything on this one just to make sure, but I told the shop, I was like, hey, you got another failed alternator. That's it. So get another one, get a different brand, get an OE, whatever you got to do. This one's failed as well, even though the last one was overcharging as well. Again, I don't know if that's the original problem, but the last two that we've had in there for sure are overcharging. So they get an alternator and the next day they call me up. They say, this thing's not fixed yet. I'm like, dang it. I must've missed something. I'll come back. So I come back and I actually look at this thing and, it was fine. It was actually charging the correct voltage, and so I go in and I ask the shop owner, and he asked the tech, and apparently there was some miscommunication. I think maybe there was still a high voltage code present. I really wasn't. I didn't grasp exactly where the communication fault <laughs> happened. Um, I'm I'm better with networks than uh, dealing with people, I guess. Um, but anyways, uh, the, the the car was fixed after that final alternator that they put in it, and I drove it around, and I confirmed this. At least I. And was able to say for sure, yeah, this thing is fixed with this alternator. So we were all good to go there. Um, But those are my three vehicles um, lately that I've dealt with. And it just seems like I'm ready for it on any vehicle that I go to that, hey, this new part might be failed. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it for this episode is just to keep it on – on top of mind for everybody, you're replacing these components, and of course, we want to try to get high quality components. Uh, you know, when we're replacing things for our customers, but even when we try our best, right now with part shortages and difficulty getting things from uh, different vendors, um, you don't really know, um, and it just seems to be happening more and more often. So, be aware of it, be cautious of it. Um, you know, know the system that you're dealing with, take the time to read the service information, understand the test you're doing, what's the purpose of this test? What do I expect from this test if everything is working normally? And what do I have? Right. If we could be confident in all of those things, we can be confident in calling apart. But that's where it comes down to testing to overcome that doubt. In the call that you made. If you're just guessing at a part based on past failures, these sort of things are really going to throw you for a loop because you have nothing to fall back on. But the testing procedures, actually checking circuits, understanding what should be there, what shouldn't be there, and measuring it, that's where the confidence comes in. But heck, even then, (laughs) it's going to make you second guess yourself um, when you get through with the same problem. But that's what we're up against out there, and uh, hopefully this will put you in the right mindset uh, when you're up against it with a vehicle of multiple failed parts. So um, that is all I've got for you today, uh, kind of a short episode, but uh, we'll get some more interviews going here in the next few weeks. Um, I appreciate everybody listening. I appreciate all the feedback. Other than that, let's get out there, start fixing the world one car at a time.